Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and this is Wise Girl. It is actually May 1st, 2018, such a gorgeous day here in New York City, and I am joined by a very special guest. I had to book her four months in advance, I think, because she's so popular and for good reason. I like to say that she's in some ways the mother of mindfulness and certainly the mother of Meta, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, if you just want to say hi, then I'll read your bio. Okay, hi. <laughs> it's great to see you. It's really great to see you, and thanks for being here on Wise Girl. Um, Saren is a central figure in the field of meditation, a world-renowned teacher, New York Times bestselling author. She's played a crucial role in bringing meditation and mindfulness practice to the West and, it's, and into mainstream culture. Since 1974, when she first began teaching, she's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, which I sat at in February with um, your co-founder, Joseph, and uh, your friend, uh, George Mumford, which was great, and the author of 10 books, including uh, Real Happiness uh, and her seminal work, Loving Kindness, and Real Love, her latest book. So here's the first sort of seminal work, right? The, the, the one that started it all, so mm -hmm. to speak, which I highly recommend. And then continuing on what is very much a popular theme, and what many would say is who we really are is real love. So how do we recover that? So Sharon, thank you so much for joining us and um, so glad to have you. Well, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. You know, we were talking a little bit before we started the interview and um, a lot of different things kind of came up, but uh, I really uh, just want to center for a moment the fact that <clears throat> oftentimes I think people think that meditation is something that we have to do do a certain way, do well, do properly. And yet I've also heard it said that meditation is who we really are in a way that it's the, the remembering of who we really are. And as meta meditation, which is the loving kindness, the love that we are, the, 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 the real focal point of all the work that you do, can you talk a little bit about what that might mean if really we are love? Well, I think that, um, you know, my view at any rate is that there's always effort involved, actually. There's always kind of doing, even if it's sneaky. Um, and there's, there's uh, certainly intentionality um, in meditation because uh, you could say these qualities are who we really are. Essentially, love, compassion, um, an unconfined kind of energy, um, you know, innate goodness, and there are lots of ways of describing it, but that isn't necessarily how we live day to day, you know, or moment to moment. So there is some process of getting close to that or returning to that. Um, it, it doesn't have to be a grim labor, you know, horrible process, which some people make it out to be, you know, at all, but it's a process. Um, and so uh, I, for example, I've, I'm a huge advocate of daily meditation practice. Um, you don't have to do, do it that way, but I think it actually makes it easier. You know, if you're trying to be mindful while you're commuting or you're trying to have loving kindness in a business meeting or, or whatever it is, um, if you've practiced every day, it's kind of like strength training. It's so much more available to you. It's so much more accessible to you. And that's also the magic of it is making something real that we might value, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, what if you hate your neighbor? What if you hate yourself, you know? There's a process of disentangling that and coming to a, a more authentic place. And so um, I, I think that the problem, of course, is, is not the intentionality or even the effort, but that sort of grimness, like I'm doing it wrong and everyone else is a better meditator than I am. And, you know, I didn't do it enough and I didn't have the right experience. That's all extra. Yeah, that whole storyline is also part of what we're beginning to recognize when we sort of take a step back and see that we aren't only our thoughts, although they certainly come and go and are a big part of what takes up our uh, time if we're not being mindful often, but that we can actually start to uncover when we just witness them and notice them something that's more deeper and perhaps more spacious than just that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's very true. And it's also, um, we see that uh, just by paying attention in a, a more complete way, 
we see so many things. We see um, that everything comes and goes. And that as much as we feel freaked out because we're feeling a certain thing, for example, a certain emotion, it's transitory. You know, it's our identification that is really uh, what's making it stick, you know. And as one of my teachers, Tibetan teacher, Sonia Rupche, said, it's not the thoughts that are the problem, it's the glue. You know, we take some thoughts to heart and then we build on them and then we build a self-image on them and then we build permanence on that. You know, I will always be this way. Uh, but if we can disentangle some of that and just come back to feeling what we're feeling, we will see that it's, it's a constantly changing um, experience. And, you know, one of the things that I know is part of your history and story that you've um, shared and that, um, you know, is part of my story is didn't exactly have ideal childhoods, although, you know, in some ways needs were met at a basic level and in many ways needs were really not met at another level and that neither is right or wrong, that it's just sort of the way things were. And I remember growing up feeling as though there was something wrong with me, could not understand why it is that I felt bad about myself all the time, even though other people would tell me good things about myself. And then I would sort of get caught in the cycle of doing things that were unskillful, as we would say, right? Whether it was drinking too much or whether it was acting out or being you know, nasty to my partner or any of those things. And I had no skill set for dealing with it, you know? And one of the things that I love about this mindfulness practice is that it's given me an opportunity to actually see that conditioning influences us and creates this personality or ego or identification with I'm a journalist or I'm a doctor or I'm a soccer mom or whatever it is and that it's not the whole picture. And so that we're kind of working on chipping away, as you said, with the intentionality and the practice, the conditioning, but we can also rest and know that there's this other element that is sort of grander or more majestic that actually is sort of like maybe not accessible to us on a regular basis when we don't even know that that seed is already there because it hasn't been watered so much, but that with these practices, especially with something like meta towards self and self-compassion, that we can really start to water those seeds. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in what you just said was also something very interesting. Like, what if you don't know that? You know, I mean, if you don't have that experience, which is the basis of the conviction, uh, even if you believe it to be true, if you haven't had the experience, then it's just a story. It's another story that may be helpful. You know, not all stories are harmful or destructive. Um, it, it may be a helpful story, but it's still just a story. And so the whole, certainly mindfulness meditation, the whole um, orientation is toward helping us have that experience of, you know, everything that we know through the mind, through dualities, so to speak, you know, is constantly changing. Um, and uh, we will not find a refuge in that which is constantly changing. Uh, that doesn't mean there's nowhere to rest, you know, in terms of awareness or whatever. And so uh, we just pay attention. And so that's why it's called things like self-witness truth, you know, like that we have um, we have clarity, not because we're relying on someone else's vision of what's true, but because we've seen for ourselves what seems to be true. And um, it's a clarity that's inclusive. You know, it's not like, I know the truth and you don't, you know, you poor sucker. Uh, it, it's really something that honors the potential within everybody. And loving kindness meditation as a method, as a methodology um, works a little differently, but it, it still will bring us to an understanding around um, uh, kind of the construct of self and other when held rigidly is really problematic because it's just a construct. You know, it's useful in terms of, you know, who lives where and who pays which taxes or whatever, but, but that sort of lack, that almost complete lack of a sense of we you know, it's self versus other with a great big other out there. That's a problem. Um, first of all, it's not true. It's not the way the world actually works. Uh, and if we're moving in a way that's antithetical to the truth, we're always in trouble, you know. Um, and it's also, uh, it, it's so lonely, you know. Like, um, I'm very fond of telling this story these days where I once almost kind of, 
temporarily ruined this young woman's life because it was, I was co-teaching a six-day seminar and she was attending. And the opening night, I, I was talking about the phrase, it's a dog-eat-dog world, because I thought, what a weird phrase is that? You know, when, But it's kind of the ethic a lot of us were taught. You know, you're on your own. Don't help anybody else because no one's there to help you. Uh, it doesn't matter who you crush on the way up. You know, they're not going to help you anyway. And, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. So I used the phrase, and this young woman came up to the microphone, and she was so shocked. She said, my whole life, I thought the phrase was, it's a doggy-dog world, like D-O-G-G-Y, D-O-G, like puppies, you know, and meadows. And she said, what a horrible phrase. It's a dog-eat-dog world. And maybe six days later, <coughs> she... Uh, it was the closing and she came up to the microphone and she said, I refuse to live in a dog eat dog world. I'm going to live in a dog eat dog world. So I just told this story last week and somebody came up to me and said, I never knew that was the phrase. I thought it was a dog eat dog world. Anyway, I don't know. I did it again. Wow. 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 Well, you know, and that is just sort of like, the whole circling back to perception is everything, right? And that to which we turn our attention is what grows. And then there's all these stories about the two wolves and one is the, you know, quote unquote, bad wolf and one is the good wolf or the, you know, and which one grows and it's the one you feed. And so that's why we're cultivating, Bhavana, these practices of really sort of getting back in touch with, as you say, the truth, which you can't, you can't really escape it, but it's a question of whether or not we know how to access living in alignment with it. And then choosing to do that if we actually are aware that we have an opportunity to, to access it. Yeah. So I think the skill building is one thing, the awareness, that point of I don't know if you would call it awakening, but just that like, wow, there's like an option. There's another way, the middle way, this sort of path of both and as opposed to either or um, that I think is so powerful and I'm so grateful for it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when we were off camera, um, I had not really been aware of what this whole thing was about until a few years ago when, you know, I'm in the middle of anchoring all these shows on television and I'm doing my work on PBS NewsHour and hosting, you know, weekend shows at this international TV station. And I was miserable continuing to not understand why I felt like I was a bad, awful person, as I was saying before, and continuing to stumble, you know, through therapy, through 12-step, through different programs that I had tried or people I had accessed. My relationships weren't great. And I ended up in jail one night, surrounded by a bunch of other women for whom that was not the first time that they were there. And I remember emerging the next day, breathing air as if I had never breathed it before, even though it was the same hot, gritty, New York concrete air, and never having a drink again, and never eating meat again, and changing my relationship to the opposite sex, and not engaging in the same kind of behavior that I had before, and really having this shift that just sort of like grace kind of came in, in my case. Now, this is after 25 years of you know, seeking and therapy and whatever. But really then trying to figure out what does this path have to teach us? It's 2,500 years old. It's worked for so many people in so many ways, although other modalities may still help folks. I've engaged, continued to engage in those as well, like the somatic experiencing uh, I was talking about. But that I have to say from my own direct experience, which you referenced, that knowing how to relate to things differently and having a template for doing that through this, through these teachings, the Dharma, has been a game changer. A game changer. And part of what you've taught me in terms of medita meta meditation and whatnot has shifted because I relate to the people that I don't know differently as well as the people I do know. And so one day, I think I told you this last year at retreat, was seeing some folks on the subway, you say this, you know, subway meditation, and you can elaborate on that a little bit in terms of street meditation or subway meditation. It went from, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be well, may you live in ease, to I love you. And it wasn't gratuitous. It was more like all these crazy thoughts in my mind about this person's talking too loud. I don't like this person's shoes. I think this person is, I don't know, smelly. I don't know. And 
let's just put that in a place of spaciousness mm -hmm. to sort of, and it was a shift and that never would have been there before. So I wanted to say, I'm really grateful for that. And of course I'm still on the path practicing, but really um, I just want to acknowledge that uh, from a personal experience to say, thank you. Yeah, I think I should probably say that Meta is uh, a word in Pali and it, it's spelled M-E-T-T-A. It's not like meta-analysis or something like that. Um, and it, it's usually translated as the term loving kindness. Uh, in colloquial English, we kind of use compassion, but they're actually considered slightly different traits in the, in the Buddhist psychology. Um, loving kindness, um, I, I usually define as, as a fundamental sense of connection. It's recognizing that someone's life has something to do with ours, um, that we live in an interdependent universe, actually. It's very different than liking somebody or approving of them, but it is that kind of bone deep recognition that um, there's a we here, you know, not just a self and other and us and them. So um, compassion, and well, I mean, let me go back to loving kindness for a moment. Loving kindness uh, often rests on a belief, you know, and sometimes a, a knowledge, but really it's a belief that all beings want to be happy. Everybody actually wants to be happy, that uh, we want a sense of belonging. We want a sense of having a home somewhere in this body, in this mind, on this earth, with one another somewhere. We want to feel connected to something bigger than our usually limited sense of who we are. Everybody wants to be happy. So the problem is not that urge, which is like rightful. Um, the problem is ignorance, is really usually not having a clue what will make us happy. You know, you talked about your own epiphanies and, and changing some behavior. We don't do that behavior to be mean. We do it because we think it's going to make us happy, you know, and we also get lots of messages and lots of lies are fed to us, you know, like this is what you're capable of, no more, and settle for this and do this. It it's, looks a little reckless, but it's great, you know, or, or whatever. And we believe those messages because how can we not? And so um, there's a whole process of really coming to understand what does make us happy. You know, what really makes us strong? Is vengefulness that strong? Is unbridled, you know, chronic rage that strong? Uh, is compassion that weak? Is generosity that stupid? You know, like, depending on our conditioning, we can have a lot of it, you know? And so uh, loving kindness rests on that understanding that everybody wants to be happy. And compassion, which is, it's just got a slightly different flavor, you know, that tenderness of compassion and the poignancy of wishing you could really help someone and like reach into their brain and just like turn it. And it's not like that. You know, that's the poignancy. It's like, we want so much to see that person say relieved of suffering and we do what we can to try to make that so, but we can't control it. But a compassion is more based on that understanding. Not that we all have the same measure of pain because we don't, but we're also vulnerable. It's like your life can look just fine, you know? And one phone call and you have a different life. It's like everybody's life is so subject to change and transitoriness all the time. And so compassion, uh, I say all that because sometimes we think of compassion as kind of hierarchical. Like I've got it all together and I'm being nice to you down there. Uh, but it's not like that because we're all so vulnerable. It's a kind of equal equal fields. And so the uh, meta techniques, M-E-T-T-A, are really designed to help deepen qualities like love and kindness and compassion. That's what they're made for or something. Yeah, which I love. And that vulnerability, that intimacy, I think um, Frank Ostateski talks about how his is a practice of intimacy. And that is really sort of being in touch with that um, vulnerable place in ourselves and with others so we can connect and be the, as Dan Siegel calls it, the mui of interdependence, the community, right? And not um, feeling like we're cut off, even if we do feel sometimes like we're either not deserving or our circumstances from our past, even though are you know less than ideal and we'd like to change them, aren't changeable. But how do we arrive in now to be able to sort of see that we can cultivate this um, compassion through these practices because we know that um, it will help us feel more connected. Mm -hmm. That's already 
what's, um, you know, who we really are and kind of what's missing. And along those lines, I want to extend the conversation a little bit to the broader community because we're living in this strange time, which has affected a lot of people and has affected different people in different ways. And it's affected people of color, I think, in this country in a certain way. Of course, everyone has their unique experience within that. But generally speaking, based on a lot of the external policies that our administration is you know, engaged in. And I want to know from your perspective how it is based on all of the lovely teachings that you share with you know, Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams and Bell Hooks and all these folks that are also Dharma practitioners and teachers. What is it that folks who are self-identified as white, do you think, can do to stay grounded in their own practice and not be overwhelmed necessarily, but also to not numb out about this, to have an actual meaningful dialogue or messy conversation or help broaden their view about these issues of race? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think with anything that has to do with how we live, you know, uh, a very powerful and important thing is to to develop the um, subtlety of mindfulness that allows us to see our own assumptions. Because a good deal of what's happening in those instances is we make an assumption about somebody because of their skin color, because of their accent, whatever it is. Um, and I'm talking about we, not sort of the policy of the country, but uh, as an individual, you know, that is something that we all tend to do. And, and just to... Um, recognize that and be it's almost like you just hold up your assumption to the light and you say do i know this is that do i know this to be true um like i tell a story in in the book real love it's not that one is not particularly based on race but um uh it's a story about a friend of mine who's an author who was on a book tour and uh he gave a talk somewhere uh one night and in the talk he mentions how when he was a young man like in college um reading proust and the remembrances of things past have been very very important for him so uh so he gives his lecture and goes out to dinner and this group of people start approaching him in the restaurant and one woman comes out of the group sort of closer to him and he takes a look at her and he thinks she looks like really like crude like an uneducated she, she thought she's probably very uneducated you know not very smart and then she said to him well, i was at your lecture and his heart sank you know and he thought what's she gonna say and, and and she said i really liked your lecture i just want to say that i get so much more out of reading proust in the original french you know <laughs> and i was like oh there's a moment you know right like we do that all the time and when i first came back for i, I practiced intensive loving kindness practice in burma in 1985, I did a three-month retreat in, in just loving kindness and, and the other qualities like compassion. And uh, I came back and I started teaching it. And uh, when I was teaching very early on in New York City, it was like a non-residential weekend in someone's apartment. And, uh, you know, we all had to do our walking meditation out on the street. And then people went home at night and then they came back the next day. So uh, this is Sunday morning. This woman talked about leaving Saturday at like five or something like that and uh, to go home and, and going, she was standing on a train platform and this man started approach her, approaching her and, and she thought, oh, he looks really weird. And then he came up to her and he started asking her all these questions about the train schedule and, and uh, she just kind of randomly pointed to some woman on the platform to get rid of him. And she said, you know, I don't know anything about the train schedule go ask that woman over there. So he said, I can't ask her. She looks really weird. <laughs> you know, so I was like, oh, how are we looking at one another? How are we meeting one another? And that's not to say everyone is on our side because they're not. You know, you have to have common sense and, and some discernment, you know. Um, <clears throat> but that kind of reflexive, you're the other. You know, you look too weird. There's nothing of value about you, something like that. That's an interesting assumption to be making. And, and so I think uh, kind of extending our training, which is being able to pay attention in that way and using it externally or in terms of the internal response to something external 
uh, is really very important. And I, I think it is something that um, would be onward leading in, in these very complicated and difficult times. Yeah, I mean, in my own direct experience, one of the things that I've come to realize is there's usually a bodily sensation that is there before I have a thought even about anything mm -hmm. one that precedes it. And then I can, if I'm aware of that, be like, oh, and then, of course, create that space to then choose and be more responsive and not as reactive. So I think that that's one of the things that a lot of folks think that mindfulness or meditation is that it kind of really isn't right so like maybe i'd eventually get to this place of enlightenment where i have no thoughts of judgment about anyone but to be mindful is just to recognize those thoughts without judging them and then giving yourself a hard time but also not like unloading your as you said rage or whatever it is mm -hmm. onto somebody else mm -hmm. uh, rather than just recognize what's happening mm -hmm. well the first gap we we tend to look for is between what we feel and how we act. Because we feel what we feel, you know, and people, I think one of the reasons there's a kind of contemporary emphasis on not judging yourself so much is because we do judge ourselves a lot, you know. People can carry on, I got angry, that's so wrong, I'm meditating five months, why am I still getting angry, you know, I've meditating 50 years, why am I still getting angry, you know, I got afraid, that's despicable, you know, like, uh, you know, so instead of just saying we feel what we feel, and in many conditions that come together for an emotion to arise, uh, we can learn a lot from being with it in a different way. So that means if we're pushing it away instantly, there's not going to be any learning. And at the same time, if we dive into it and we get overwhelmed by it and we lose our center and we're into like, I'm going to be an angry person for the rest of my life sort of territory, there's also not going to be any learning. Uh, you know, so we want to kind of slice right down the middle of those and be mindful of, be aware of, the experience, say, of the anger. And then, um, you know, we tend to see, these feelings are very complex, they're compounds. So we tend to see a lot of other feelings kind of interlaced within like a big emotion like that. So maybe we see sadness inside the anger, or we see fear inside the anger. You know, it's a lot of stuff happening in there and that's interesting. Um, and we also see change, that it's constantly changing. No, you're not gonna be angry for the rest of your life, you know? You're not even going to be angry in five and a half minutes, you know, like uh, things come and go. And within them, they're coming and going. <clears throat> you know, the anger may not just like instantly flash away, but you see there's space within there, there's movement within there. And it's a very different experience of life when it's all kind of in a live system like that. Yeah, it really is. Because as you've said many times, we can always begin again. And it's about how we relate to things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not about changing whatever it is that's out there that's happening. Right. And I think those two foundational teachings are really um, wonderful reminders uh, just as we move about our daily lives because things just always come up, including this sort of sense of, uh, you mentioned you know, earlier, like with other people, we can't change them, but we can wish good things for them. Mm -hmm. or and know like sort of when to say in our sandbox and when to like, you know, offer a pail and jump into theirs, but that that's discernment and also equanimity, balance, sort of that idea of harmony as opposed to of um, overdoing or intrusion. Uh, but again, moving toward the, the, the broader lens with the um, political atmosphere, if you will, um, a lot of people are very, I think, unsettled internally, uh, wanting to be active, moving out there in the world. I know a lot of even Dharma teachers around here, like Ethan Nickturn and other folks. And, you know, I just bumped into Attorney uh, General Eric Schneiderman the other day. And I know you talk a lot about, um, uh, you know, the rep from Ohio. And, 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 and so there's a lot of things that are happening, uh, which is great. But I also think that there's sort of a split with people who feel like we need to be angry and active and maybe are caught in the anger versus the folks who are using the anger as an energy that may fuel a sense of more grounded stability mm -hmm. that can come from a mindfulness practice. So do you have any thoughts about that? <laughs> yeah, well, um, uh, in two different directions, okay, so 
Uh, one is I know there's a lot of energy from really thoughtful and good-hearted people around kind of civil conversations, you know, f actually being able to talk to people with whom you don't agree and trying to, you know, foster a sense of finding ourselves in one another as we have these conversations. And from my point of view, while that's a noble pursuit, oh, there's a cat. And, uh, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's certainly an important and good thing. I'm also very much, I'm passionate about people engaging in the system and wielding the levels of power that we have, which means voting. Um, you know, you named two really incredible public servants, you know, Eric Schneiderman and Tim Ryan. And, uh, you know, sometimes when, even when I see people protesting and marching, I just look at those photos and I think, I hope you vote. Because without that, you know, it's, it's different than sort of the effort to have a more harmonious Thanksgiving dinner, you know, with uncle, whomever, you know. This is very important because legislation affects and policy, affects people's lives. And every time I write something about voting, uh, somebody writes back, somebody comments like, I think so much less of you now, or um, I don't know why you're trying to encourage people to participate in an evil system because we don't participate, like not voting is voting. You know, not voting is, is saying, I, I don't care and no one is gonna be affected and people are largely affected by these very small changes. Like, you know, and I've said to people, well, maybe it doesn't matter to you what minimum wage is, it matters to a lot of people, you know? And if you're saying, as what people often say about different candidates, so the candidates are not that different, you know, I remember saying to somebody once, well, they may only be different on the margins, but a lot of people live on those margins. And these days, it's not marginal difference. You know, it really isn't. And um, I was just in Charlottesville not too long ago, you know, where not long before then, people were marching with Nazi flags. And I was talking to the uh, Pat Coffey, who's a local insight meditation teacher there. And, and he talked about his father, who was a World War II veteran, you know, and I think Many people, I don't know about his father in particular, but many people of that generation, you know, they came back from the war, they were silent. They drank or they just festered inside, you know. There wasn't that understanding of trauma and, and post-traumatic stress and speaking. I mean, it, was, it just wasn't there, you know. So they just sat there and suffered and in some cases caused a lot of other people to suffer. And, uh, you know, but what Pat said was that my father could see this on the streets of an American city. You know, he would just faint, you know, like, um, you know, and so I think these are also times where we can't afford to be disengaged, where having civil conversations is, is one step. And we also need to look at, um, you know, who's controlling things and let's, let's try to make a difference. And, and, and to have those civil conversations, I know Van Jones tries to do this on his show on Saturdays. And, mm -hmm. um, and I know that there are other folks who do in different ways with different platforms. And clearly our friend and colleague Dan Harris is, you know, one of those folks who does his part in that regard. But there's also sort of this idea that there's right and there's wrong. There's black mm -hmm. and white. There's things my side and frankly I grew up in Boston and I've been here in New York for 10 years and just witnessing the way that the sports rivalries are is whoa to me um, and I won't disclose who I root for <laughs> but you know the point being how do we what's the portal to that connection if you don't have a direct experience of or if you can't tap into or haven't yet tapped into a direct experience of feeling as one might in a deep meditation state of anything that might happen, like the sense of dissolving or the, you know, any of these things that may or may not happen or connection that, that may not happen. How does one move into that? Well, I, I mean, you know, that sense of civil conversation is not my main goal. I'm much more intrigued with getting people to vote. Yeah. You know, and uh, there are, I mean, I think that's an amazing aspiration and uh, there are ways of doing that. Listening, obviously, is more. Someone like Van Jones is willing to leave the comfortable territory where everyone agrees with him and go elsewhere. You know, there, there are definitely ways of, of promoting that and they're very important. 
Um, you know, but I think a lot of it has to do with listening. And uh, I think loving kindness is an amazing tool and an intriguing tool in, in all those kinds of situations. <clears throat> but I also, I want to see people um, having a voice, you know, and, and exercising the voice that we actually have. Wouldn't it be great if we can lower the voting age, right? And all those parking can vote like now, right? Because they're, they're they're they would be perfect. <laughs> they're amazing, and 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 uh, you know, I was I was um, just watching one of the videos that they had of uh, of Naomi the other day talking about um, women of color and representing them in that uh, conversation as well, and just really remarkable and articulate for someone who's so young, but so wise. Um, so this was the book that came out last year and it really talks about essentially unconditional love. And a lot of folks think of love the way that it's portrayed in the movies or in you know, magazines and that kind of thing. And I really think that, especially romantic love, forget about like even parental or familial love or those kinds of sibling love, which are all valid and true in their own way. But this idea of unconditional love versus attachment, your friend Krishnadas is the one that really kind of first drilled this one mm -hmm. into my head. Mm -hmm. And this tit for tat and wanting something back. How do we shift into that place of being generous, but still having boundaries so that we have needs that are valid, that we also can protect mm -hmm. and then be generous. Well, here I come to the kind of almost formal loving kindness practice, you know, which uh, I've seen huge results from in my own life and, and with, you know, so many that I've taught because it is a practice and it's, um, uh, it's a very focused practice in a lot of ways where you're gathering your energy and, kind of wild attention it's all over the place you're gathering it together uh, behind an offering which is like may you be happy may you be peaceful uh, it's a it's a generosity practice it's a gift giving practice so uh, we use phrases just to kind of almost embody that gift you know may you be safe may you be happy may you be peaceful whatever those phrases may be and interestingly enough classically the practice begins with offering it to ourselves you know, so uh, as you keep doing the practice and then maybe you extend loving kindness to someone you care about, someone who's been good to you, who's helped you in some way, or maybe you've never met them, but they've inspired you from afar. We offer loving kindness to a friend. Uh, we offer loving kindness to, and I don't mean all in one session, but I mean over the course of time as we're, as we're pursuing the practice, we offer loving kindness to what's known as a neutral person which very often is someone like a shopkeeper, someone we tend to see now and then. Because an interesting thing that happens is that you can kind of monitor the flow of the relationship because you see them now and then. Um, and as you're meditating with them in your, in your heart every day, uh, we offer loving kindness to a difficult person. Um, and this just as a side note, we're not supposed to start with the most unthinkable person in our lives has just hurt us so cruelly or in our view has behaved so wrongly on the world stage. Start with someone you have a little bit of conflict with, you know, uh, and slowly, more slowly make your way over to someone more difficult. It's not that it's wrong to start with someone or, or try to have loving kindness for someone who's difficult. It's just that it usually takes, it's like building blocks could well be put in place for it to be an easier rather than a harder experience. So, um, you know, there's a kind of embodied understanding that comes, even if you don't have the words, like, what could it possibly mean to have compassion for this person and myself at the same time? Or what could it mean to have compassion for someone that I really don't like, I don't agree with, I do think is wrong. I don't think that's made up characterizations. Um, and uh, whose agenda I'm going to fight, but still have compassion for them. You know, what does it mean to have compassion or loving kindness for someone who realize I can't fix it? You know, no one as of yet has developed the chip we can put in someone else's brain, you know, when we have the remote control and it's like, cheer up, would you? You know, it's not like that in life. And so, again, you may not even have the words to describe it, but you have gone through enough in those building block processes over time that you can sense it inside yourself. You do know how to have compassion, say, for both of you and things like that. So that's why they kind of put off the more difficult person. So we start with ourselves. We have 
the benefactor, someone who's helped us. We have a friend. We have a neutral person. We have a difficult person, if there is one in our lives. And we offer loving kindness to all beings everywhere. No one left out. And um, it's a training. It's a practice. These are tools. Uh, and as tools, you know, it's one thing when the tools sit on the shelf. It's like you, or you look at the yoga mat every day, you know. <laughs> or even worse, you travel it with it all around the whole damn world and you never pull it out and do the yoga. You know, it's like. It's like that. That's why I'm really into practice because it's all about the practice. Yeah, I love that. Thanks. And I, I'm laughing because um, I think pretty much everybody can identify with that yoga mat analogy. Uh, and, and I also feel as though, again, you know, it's the idea of making sure that we are always putting the, uh, you know, fertilizer in the soil, even when it's the fallow time before harvest, right? Like there's still a richness that it needs to have so that when it's time for the plants to grow, that they actually can receive the sun in a way and then nourish everyone. And, and I think that that's what we forget when we're not just like, oh, but I'm not picking the fruit right now. It's not fruit picking season. And yet there's this other period that's just sort of more cyclical where we can kind of do that. So what are you working on now? Because I know you're writing always, and I don't know to the degree that you can disclose, but I'm curious uh, because I know that you're always working on something. Well, I am. As a matter of fact, I just signed another book contract. Great. Um, Congratulations. My mudita, my empathetic, appreciative joy. Thank you. you. Or maybe <laughs> compassion is more warranted. <laughs> um, when I uh, was thinking about the terrain of real love, it's really the third part of the book. The, the book is divided um, into three sections, pretty much. Love for oneself, which is not narcissism, but really the development of a kind of reservoir out of which we can be generous to others. Uh, love for and others, the second section, whether that's a parent or a child or a partner or uh, somebody. Uh, I did a lot of um, meeting with groups and, and trying to really crowdsource the stories and insights for that book and the very first group I did was in New York City and someone raised his hands and he said most people think of a good relationship as 50-50 my dog and I we're 100-100 <laughs> you know so that. Uh, you know it could be a pet and then the third section is about love for all beings and the possibility of that actually fueling social movements you know like people who are not coming uh, particularly from a place of only anger. You know, uh, we're really trying to make this a different sort of world and, and are basing that on some sense of finding oneself in one another and wishing that all beings could be happy, all beings. And it's a real conviction that when we act wrongly and we cause pain and suffering, that is coming from a place of pain and limitation also. And that were people to be happier, we wouldn't act in those ways. And so um, that was actually the book I wanted to write was the third section. I, you know, I, I wasn't opposed to writing the rest, but the thing I was most intrigued by was that third section. And uh, as it turned out, that wasn't the book that the publisher wanted. And so uh, they wanted this broader book with, with all this, which is what I wrote. And then... Um, just recently, that same publisher called me and proposed the book that I had proposed three years ago. Isn't that amazing? I said, didn't you turn that down like three years ago? And they said, well, it's a different world now. So that's basically the book. I don't know exactly how to describe it, which is not a good sign. But it's sort of like mindfulness, love, loving kindness, and changing the world to the, or affecting the world to the best as we can. Well, I love that. And I really love the fact that it's capitalizing on where we are right now and some of what we were just even talking about and um, that you're going to continue that conversation using these practices and these tenets because really, you know, when we look at it the way like Dr. Martin Luther King would call beloved community and that our interdependence is, you know, that we're, that our liberation is interbound. And, you know, I've been doing a lot of personal work on implicit bias and unconscious bias as part of my own training, as well as other things like positive neuroplasticity and understanding the brain and how it works. And that there's a reason why we have these reactive states that come out of survival, but they're not conducive to what we would call eudaimonic well-being, right? This sort mm -hmm. of state of general peace as opposed to this 
hedonistic sense pleasure. I want the pizza. I want the coffee. I want whatever, mm -hmm. which, you know, we all still do sometimes, but to know that there's those both states and that this beloved community and cultivating that with all of these practices, but really feeling it from the inside out, Mm -hmm. um, I think for me has been eye-opening to understand through these unconscious bias trainings that there's a lot of suffering that's also happening with non-POC communities, people of color communities, perhaps self-identified white communities, or even now with Me Too and with Time's Up, even with perhaps, uh, you know, more dominant, you know, yeah. masculinity or patriarchy and, and that kind of energy mm -hmm. that there's a suffering there underneath it the hurt people hurt people but mm -hmm. then the anger or the action can sort of mask some of that so how to like open up that conversation to looking inward to sort of start to see how that can broaden out um is really mm -hmm. beautiful but i think it's really hard it is hard i'm not sure it's most appropriate that that conversation begin from outside, say, the activist community. You know, there are plenty of people within the activist community who are seeking um, some other way of being or, you know, less stress or uh, kind of another perspective or, or they have it. You know, like I, I, uh, I know many of the people, you know, uh, either openly meditate or secretly meditate, you know, or uh, in in these different communities and, and also um, there's just interest in the way that, you know, uh, was kind of different. It's like when I think of Martin Luther King Jr., I think of the civil rights movement, I think of a religious movement, I think of a movement of love. And I think of people finding courage from connecting to something much bigger. And in a way that um, always startled me when I actually think about it, uh, I realized at one point, unlike, you know, like history can give you a kind of um, uh, transient or mistaken comfort too. Like I, I would think, oh, you know, they did these brave things and they went out and they registered voters because I'm obsessed with voting. They registered voters, you know, and they got beaten and it was and killed and, you know, and, and it was so scary and, um, you know, but they did it because they knew for the country to change thing that had to do it. It had to be done. Someone had to do it. And then I realized, no, it was even more than that because they didn't even know it was going to work. It's like, it's one thing looking back at something. It's another thing looking ahead and saying, this needs to be done. I'm going to step forward and do it. I don't know if it will work, but I'm going to do it anyway. And that's really where they were coming from. And that came from a bigger connection. That came from a deeper connection. You could see, you know, people crouched down in the dirt singing or praying, you know, before they then went and marched and got beaten and whatever. And and so um, I've often thought of it, I just think of it in that light. I don't know what it would have been without that element. And so what happens now? You know, for some people, it's still the church or the black church or their synagogue or, or for a lot of people, it's not right now the source of that kind of connection. So where's it going to come from? Yeah, I love that. And I know our time is almost up. And, um, you know, I guess the, the, the final thought I had on that is that because in this culture, Western culture, we have really been programmed to almost feel ashamed if we can't figure it out by ourselves on our own. And yet there is a part of mindfulness practice that really is the self-investigation and the self-inquiry and the self-studying that then allows the obvious, quote unquote, eventually perhaps, um, sort of sense of interconnection that emerges from that sense of self-familiarity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, and so I guess that I would just wish, again, may all beings be you know, free of any shame for then reaching mm -hmm. out to their neighbors uh, and saying, you know, there's this new Mr. Rogers movie, right? That's coming out. M won't you be my neighbor? That we have that energy to say, won't you be my neighbor? And can we do this together? And not just, oh, I have to figure out how to do this by myself. Yeah, I mean, there's some incredible statistic, which I don't have, you know, in my head to pull up, but 
some phenomenal uh, statistics in the States about loneliness. You know, and they just replicated it doing a, a national health survey in, in England. I don't think the numbers were exactly the same, but they were both shocking, you know. And, and you think, well, people are reporting themselves, they're describing themselves as lonely, whether they're in a relationship or not. And there's such a, a significance being placed these days on health and social connection, right? And my understanding of social connection is that it's not just numbers, you know, it's not numbers at all. It's not like, oh, you only have three friends, you better have 15. It's, it's how connected we feel. You know, and so uh, there's a lot of work for us to do in cre recreating a sense of community because I think a lot of the places, uh, ordinary places as well as religious places where that was found, uh, they're not so strong anymore. I also mentioned in, in Real Love um, this great book called Bowling Alone, you know, which is a, a look at the dissolution of things like bowling leagues in the US and how, you know, people used to come together in different ways. And uh, I'm not even sure, you know, I mean, I live in, alone and, and uh, I have one little TV, you know, and like, could be the 50s if you look at my place. And I understand that families don't even sit around the TV anymore, you know, because everyone's got their own thing and the screen and they're watching different things. It's just like, you know, there's a lot that's splintering or splintered and so, um, you know, it, it's important to look at new models and new structures and new ways we can come together. Yeah, and I really love that that's what you'll be sharing with us, more of your wisdom around that. And until that comes out, I don't, I don't think you have a title yet. Maybe you do. Maybe you're not allowed to share it if you do. So in the meantime, again, Real Love is uh, the latest and greatest. And then, of course, you know, sort of the foundation of all of this, Loving Kindness, and of course, many other books, I think probably a dozen other books, um, and really just able to share uh, Sharon's teachings online, uh, SharonSalzberg.com, and then also I know you have um, free podcasts and teachings all around the country and around the world. New York City, you're here often. So I just want to really say that you are certainly part of my personal path and are, and um, one that I think embodies a certain degree of relatable resilience that uh, a lot of people really touch into and appreciate, and all with a sense of humor and with, uh, frankly, a bit of optimism <laughs> that I think is, uh, is also welcome, despite all of the, you know, New Yorker, you know, neurotic stuff that goes on with people like us. So I really just want to share my gratitude for your time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Take it easy.